Good evening. We are continuing in our study in Colossians, and tonight we're starting in chapter 2. Um, we had a break for a couple weeks for Thanksgiving, or was it one week or two weeks? I can't remember now. Anyway, we had a break. Yeah. Uh, so, but we finished up with chapter 1 before the break, and so, so we'll start up in chapter 2 tonight. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And when we finished chapter 1, uh, we looked at what Paul wrote about his God-given suffering to bring the message of Christ to the Gentiles. Um, the message that he said was regarding Christ in you, that was a mystery. Um, and he said that that mystery, the revelation of that mystery, brings about the hope of glory. Uh, specifically, uh, the first chapter ended with Paul talking about how his ministry was to warn and teach everyone with all wisdom. And uh, this was for a specific purpose. He had a goal in this ministry that went beyond just the salvation of souls. And I say just, that not to diminish the salvation of souls. But there's, there's more to his ministry. Um, his goal was maturity of uh, Christian thought and living, that Christians would grow in maturity. He said in verse 28, Him we proclaim, talking about Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that was his goal for Christians. Um, this was not an easy ministry for, for Paul. His commission from Christ himself was not to do all of this with ease, but with much suffering. Again, Paul's writing to the church from prison in Rome. But uh, this goal of maturity in Christ would not be hampered by prison bars, so he would keep the fight going. Um, the last verse shows his, the attitude of his heart for the work of Christ and how he saw it being accomplished. In verse 29 of chapter 1, the last verse there, he said, "...for this I toil." struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, we see in that verse the emphasis that Paul puts on the source of strength that works uh, that that he works under and it's not an emphasis on self. Okay, he clearly credits the work of the Holy Spirit's power in this toil and struggle. And I want us to understand this as we move into chapter 2 tonight because we don't start with the introduction of a new subject matter in chapter 2. Paul's still talking about this struggle. And we need to understand that this is not Paul bragging about um, how he's better than others. He's not propping himself up as independently strong. Uh, he, yes, he wants to talk about the struggle that he has, but his motives are, I think, pure. And I think regarding... Wanting the church to know about the struggle he's enduring, his motives are twofold. He wants them to see that they are not second best, okay, that he cares for them as he does all the churches, and two, that they would understand this is truly the work of Christ. In other words, the message is the truth from Christ, empowered by Christ for the glory of Christ. Christ is his emphasis throughout this letter. And that will come out more in this second chapter of Paul's letter as we uh, look at what he wrote to the church in Colossae. So let's start with reading out a, a section of this second chapter, just the first three verses, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Colossians 2. For I, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come together tonight opening your word. We ask, Father, that you would help us to have understanding. Lord, that you would bring this truth to our hearts and minds in a way that 
changes us as we study your word, that we would uh, mold our lives and our thinking after the truth of your word and not according to what we think is best. And Father, we thank you for the words that Paul has written to this church that we can apply to ourselves even these 2,000 years or so later. We thank you, Lord, that you preserve your word or that it will never pass away. Uh, You are mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and we love you and we thank you for salvation, Lord, that you have graciously given as a gift through repentance and faith by the death of your Son on the cross. We want to give you praise for that. We want you to receive all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. As we look at this, I wanted to start by talking about some of the qualities that uh, a pastor should possess in increasing amounts. And I think we can agree on these things and, and... and not in any particular order here, but I'm going to start with biblical knowledge or knowledge of the truth is a quality that we would want in a pastor in increasing amounts. The ability to teach, uh, patience, holiness, speaking ability, leadership ability, counseling ability, humility, courage, etc. We could have a huge list of things, of qualities that a pastor should possess. And that is not, of course, an exhaustive list, but uh, it's a list that I think most Christians would be able to spout out, spout off without too much thought. Um, but something left out of that list that should be near the top is a love for the church. And, and I think Paul exhibits that. The whole point of being a pastor is to care for the flock of God that the Spirit has given to that pastor. The most important way a pastor can love the church is to preach and teach the Word of God, the truth and to call on the church to walk in obedience to the truth. That's the, that's the most important way that a pastor can love the church. In fact, the courage that it takes for any Christian these days, you included, if you are a believer, the courage that it takes to stand on biblical truth in, is no small thing, even in our culture today. But for the pastor to stand in the pulpit and proclaim the truth of God's word is always an exercise in courage and love in the midst, especially in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul was, of course, no stranger to the cultural penalties of preaching the truth, but it never stopped him because he loved the church. Uh, it, it was not just that Christ told him to go and do this, which he did, but it was because he had a genuine love for the church. He really did love the church. No one loves the church more than Jesus, who gave himself up for her, also, as we saw in 1 John, for anyone who says they're a Christian but does not love their brothers and sisters in Christ, they are indeed not a Christian. That's what we learned when we went through 1 John. And everything that Paul has been talking about, as we uh, see now is still, that he's still talking about, is what he's doing because of his love for Christ and for the church. That's, that's his motivation. And the, and the truth is under attack in this church, uh, and Paul has been addressing that fact by his teaching, as we saw through chapter 1, uh, about the supremacy of Christ in his deity, in his humanity, in his work on the cross, a complete emphasis on Christ. Um, that was the, the truth that Paul had to go after first, because it's, it's under attack. One of the ways Paul expresses his love for the church here is by telling them about and wanting them to know about his struggle, which can sound kind of weird that, you know, that someone would want someone to know about their struggle. There are churches not started by Paul and that that he's never been to, and he hasn't met the people yet, and the church at Colossae is one of them. Uh, And here in, in the first part of chapter 2, he also mentions another one of those churches, which is the church at Laodicea. And Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae, so roughly the equivalent of going from Mount Shasta to Weed. It kind of gives you a little picture that's not really that far, but it's something similar to that. 
Uh, they were in what was known as the Lycus Valley in the region of Phrygia, which is part of Asia Minor. Um, and you can imagine that the heresies affecting the church at Colossae might reach to the others as well. Okay, that, That's one reason why Paul would want both churches to hear uh, what he's saying in this letter, and he mentions that. Um, in fact, later on in, in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. He wants them to exchange letters. He wants each church to know what he's saying to the other one, okay? Which, as we see the message that he's writing about in Colossians, that can inform us that these same heresies were uh, visible in, in the other churches around there as well. He wants them all to know. And the first word of chapter 2 is the word for, and it connects Paul's writing and what he's writing now back to what he has just written in chapter 1. Again, he ended chapter 1 talking about his struggle and his goal in preaching the gospel and teaching the Word of God for Christians to mature in Christ. The first three verses of chapter 2 are all one really long sentence, Um, but I want to look at uh, verse 1 by itself for a minute, so let's look at that. Chapter 2, verse 1, "'For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face.'" Okay, so he mentions the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and anyone, any of the people or churches that have not seen him in person. So then a question comes up, why would it be a big deal for a church to not have met Paul in person? Why might that be a big deal? What do you guys think? They what? Yeah, they don't know him. They don't know him personally. They might have heard of him, but they don't know him personally. They, don't, they haven't pers- personally witnessed his character and his teaching. What else? What are some other reasons, maybe, why it would be a big deal for churches or people not to have met him? could be true. I mean, it's certainly true among the Jews, maybe not so much among the Gentiles that he's preaching to um, because he wasn't persecuting them at the, at the beginning, but certainly among, among Jews, yes. And we see in the Scriptures that they did, right? Even Ananias, when Jesus sent Ananias to go un, unblind, it's not the right word, but yeah. I don't, maybe I just made up a new word, unblind. Went to unblind him. <laughs> That was one of Ananias' fears. Like, I know this guy. This guy persecutes the church. Are you sure, Jesus? Uh, And Jesus told him, go. Um, So, yeah. Another big reason why this could be a big deal for people not to know Paul or not to have met Paul in person is that he was sent by Christ himself. I mean, think of that closeness of relationship. The, you know, it's not like this is multiple generations removed from Christ. Paul met Christ Christ converted him. Christ taught him. Christ sent him. Uh, So he was a powerful tool of God to bring the truth of Christ to the churches. And they hadn't benefited from that personally. Paul had gone about starting churches with with other men and um, ministering the word of God there, but these particular churches hadn't benefited from Paul's ministry personally in their lives. So that's kind of a big deal because he was... uh, you know, we might think of him as a celebrity today. You know, we, we talk about a celebrity culture. Um, but, and that has bad connotations. But with Paul, it wouldn't be bad connotations unless somebody was trying to worship him. Um, but, but there was no closer to connection, no closer connection to Christ himself than Christ's own chosen apostles. So perhaps if you can think about this church, if, if, Paul had gone about to all these other places, yet he hadn't come there yet. They, you can see how they might think uh, maybe they were second best. You know, maybe they hadn't, uh, and of course he's in prison. He's kind of got a good excuse right now for not being there. Okay? But uh, they, there perhaps could be some of that sentiment in the church uh, because he did. He started and visited many other churches, um, and they had had his personal attention. He's a very important person, as were the other apostles, taking the word of Christ out and, and starting uh, the foundations of the church. Uh, 
So that may have been some of Paul's motivation in writing this way. Like I mentioned earlier, they're, they're not second best. Paul does love them and is taking the time to write to them to help them uh, in their Christian growth and maturity because of what's coming against them in terms of the heresies of the day. And Paul didn't just want them to know that he struggled, but he wanted them to know how great that struggle was specifically, as he said, for you. He wanted them to know that he was struggling for them. Again, this word really has the meaning of agonizing. The word that Paul used there has this, a deep meaning of, of agonizing. Um, but how was he agonizing for them? He seems to make this specific to them, but he wasn't, he wasn't in prison for preaching to the Colossians. He wasn't in prison for preaching the gospel, but, but not because he was in Colossae preaching the gospel. So how is he agonizing for them? So here, however, it seems best not to think Paul is speaking about his current imprisonment or his physical sufferings, but to understand what Paul is talking about here is as a reference to his prayer life, a reference to how he's praying for them. He's saying, I want you to know how great my agonizing in prayer is for you. And now, of course, also his writing. He's, he's writing to them as well. Paul labored in prayer for people and for churches. We see that throughout um, the scriptures that he has written. He knew, he knew for sure and believed the truth of what the Apostle John wrote about prayer um, of Christians who pray according to the will of God. And we saw that in our study in 1 John. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This would be, this would be Paul's mindset about prayer, for sure. And it makes even more sense when we look back at what he said in this very letter to these people in chapter 1, verse 9. He said, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He, he's been praying for them. He's already talked about the fact that he's praying for them. Have you ever been concerned over someone's spiritual well-being and, and not able to be with them personally or, uh, and, and spend the time with them personally to minister to them the truth of God face to face? And, and if so, what are some of the thoughts and feelings you have about that situation, the fact that you can't be there? Right. Right. Yeah. A, a good example. Um, you know, and think about Paul. He, he's stuck in prison. You know, w knowing these problems within the church, for sure he would have wanted to get over there and be in person with them and maybe even rebuke these, whoever the people were that were bringing the heresies in. But, but he couldn't. So frustration, that's one of the, one of the thoughts. What, what about anybody else? Been in that situation where you just, for whatever reason, were unable to be with someone to minister to them the word of God. Painful, okay. Right. Sad, painful, frustrating. Kind of a feeling of helplessness in some ways. Maybe anxiety. I think we've heard about that recently. <laughs> it's, it, honestly, it's one of those things that, that we must take to the Lord in prayer. And, and thanksgiving, and to be rid of our anxieties about these things. Um, because, because of one thing, because of the knowledge of the truth that God is sovereign over all things. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray, do we? I mean, have you ever been in that situation where you just don't, 
you know the situation's bad and you know what someone needs, but you just, seems like you pray a little bit, but then you run out of words and you just don't even know what to pray, right? But God takes care of that. In talking about the hope that we have in salvation and the fact that all of creation has been subjected to futility because of sin and all the suffering that there is, Paul speaks to the subject of not knowing what to pray about. Then he gives the solution to the problem, and of course, it is a divine solution. If you turn with me over to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8. And we'll look at verses 26 through 28. Because likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, so here we, we see the commentary on the sovereignty of God when it talks about the Spirit of God having to intercede for us because we don't know something, i.e. how to pray or what to pray for. But He does. He's God. Also in the last part of that those verses, they're talking about how things work out specifically for those who are called according to his purpose. And in fact, what did verse 27 say the Spirit intercedes to bring about? The will of God, right? Not the will of man, but the will of God, because he alone is sovereign. And we want to agree with the sovereignty of of the will of God, the sovereign will of God, but we don't always know how the Spirit of God does. So prayer can be a struggle. It can be a struggle in the sense that, and I think we can all agree with this, it, it's a struggle in the sense that we want to pray more than we do, right? Uh, it's also a struggle, it can be a struggle in the sense that we sometimes don't know what to pray, and in the sense that we are so earnestly praying for something or someone that it's an exhausting effort. There's kind of three ways that prayer can be a struggle there. And Paul wants them to know, the Colossians wants them to know, this is how he's caring for them in their Christian lives. He wants them to know that he loves them that deeply. And it's not just, it's not just so that they'll know that he has said these words, right? Or that they would be able to tell someone, Paul's praying, Paul's praying for us. The word that Paul used here in verse 1 in our Colossians passage um, for the word they use for to know is ido. Okay? This is it's speaking of a, a fullness of knowledge as opposed to something that you are coming to know more and more or, or a progress of knowledge. It's something that is talking about a fullness of knowledge. Um, the word used to talk about progress of knowledge usually is gnosko. Okay, and we can see how these words are used differently in the Bible like this in John 8:55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Okay, this is Jesus talking. Jesus said, "You have not known gnosko or come to know." Okay, there's a progression there. You have not known him. But he says, as Jesus is talking about himself, I know him. And there he uses that word, Ido. Here Jesus says, in essence, I know God perfectly. He has all knowledge. That's the difference in those words. Ido is, is complete knowledge. Gnosko is a, a progressing in knowledge. So in our text, Paul uses that word, Ido, here. He wants them to know completely, fully. When he says, I want you to know of my struggle, that's the word know he's using there. There's nothing more they can learn on the subject that, he, that he's agonizing for them in prayer. If they only knew how much he cared, 
for them in this way. Perhaps they would listen to the words of truth that he writes to them here even more. Perhaps they would pay that much more attention to the truth about Christ in you that he writes about, about Christ as God, about Christ as the God-man who is Savior and Lord. He wants them to know that he struggles this way for them in prayer, and now he's writing to them this, um, to tell them this fact. Again, this struggle that he wants them to know he has for them is not just for the Colossians, but for the Laodiceans uh, and all those who've never seen him face to face. He says, the Apostle Paul loves them and cares for them. They are not second best. And that brings us to the, the next verse, which verses which show what this care for them leads Paul to want for them in their lives and relationships with Christ and one another. In fact, Paul indicates that these Christians, um, having the full knowledge of how Paul struggles for them in prayer, will experience positive manifestations of God's blessing. By having this knowledge that he wants them to have about his struggle for them, there are some results that come from that. And we see these results show up in the next several verses. And there are three of them that Paul talks about. We, we see the first two of them in verse, in verse 2, and then the third one begins in verse 2 and goes to the end of verse 3. Those three things are that their hearts would be encouraged, um, that they would be knit together in love, and that they would have full assurance. Okay, these, are, these are three things that he wants for them. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 in our passage. It says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, look at the first result of knowing about Paul's struggle for them, that their hearts would be encouraged. Some Bibles, some of your translations might say comforted. And the phrase, may be encouraged, comes from a Greek word, parakaleo. The basic meaning of the word is to call alongside, or in this context could be also translated as strengthen. Um, They were dealing with a lot of heresy, as we've said, false teaching coming against the truth that they'd been taught, so they had a need for strengthening, a need for encouragement. Okay, the strengthening or encouragement here is directed at, as Paul talks about, as, at the hearts, the hearts of the people. So what does the word heart most commonly refer to in the Scriptures when it's used in this way? Is it talking about the organ pumping in our chests? Right, so it's referring to the, the inner person, right? The center of, of knowledge and thought and all that, okay? The inner person. Um, the last half of Revelation 2.23 says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Heart and mind are used synonymously there. This is, it's not about emotion, not about emotional feeling. It's based in knowledge of the truth of the Word of God. And also a familiar verse in Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God does when you read it. And many of you can testify to that as you've read scripture before and been convicted by the word of God, right? You can't hide from it. So what Paul is after here is that their minds, the core of their thinking would be strengthened because it's been under attack, right? And beaten down by false teaching, by circumstances, by emotions based on false, falsehood. Those things can wear on a person, can they not? It can wear you down. It can drag your soul down to a place of weariness. William Barclay gave an Excellent example, I think, from classical Greek of what this word means in the context Paul uses it. He says, There was a Greek regiment which had lost heart and was utterly dejected. The general sent a leader to talk, talk to it and such purpose that courage was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. That is what parakaleo means here. It is Paul's prayer that the church may be filled with that courage which can cope with any situation. 
You hear that? Like the encouragement that's meant for this, that, that Paul is talking about. That that's what he wants them to have. That's what he's praying for for them. Um, it's a good prayer, isn't it? It would be a good prayer for us to pray for ourselves. It would be a good prayer for us to pray for other Christians who's, um, who've been beaten down by sin or by life circumstances, um, bad health, whatever it may be. We need encouragement sometimes. We can, we can, unfortunately, we can forget. We can forget who God is. And so we can pray for ourselves to that end. We can pray for other believers to that end. And that's what Paul is doing here. Well, how can Christians make sure that our, our thinking and our emotions respond properly? How can we make sure of that? Keep your mind, absolutely, right? You're, you're basing everything on the truth, which is the Word of God. That, that's our thinking process. Everything we think um, brings the Word of God to bear on all of life's situations, on the things we see around us. We go to the Word of God to make sense of them. Right? If emotions respond to what goes on in the heart, what the mind perceives, then Christians need to engage their minds in the truth. Right? When the mind is filled with biblical truth, the person's emotions will respond properly to life circumstances. But if we don't, if we don't have the Word of God, the truth um, in our minds, filling our minds, then we won't recognize things. We won't be able to respond properly to the situations going on around us. We'll be just like everybody else who, who can't make sense of things, right? But God has given us his word. What about the next result that we see? That they would be knit together in love. <clears throat> the word used by Paul here means to unite or bring together. And it goes with the first result that we already talked about in that both encouraged hearts and being united or knit together, are done in love. Um, after explaining spiritual gifts in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk about what unites believers in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This unites believers. It is fact. It is truth. But we can sometimes forget this truth, can't we, when life happens. When we do, we need to, we need to remember. We need to be reminded sometimes. Sometimes we, we're not remembering on our own. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to remember Right? We need input from them in our lives. Help us to be reminded of it. And by God's grace, that brings about a sense of peace and healing of the heart. Right? We aren't then re-knit together because we were never actually unknit. Right? We might forget something, but we are Christians. We are not unknit. Uh, we are simply reminded of the truth that we are knit together in Christ, and we're not alone. And that is a pow- it's powerful in this life of sin and suffering. So in a time of struggle with these things, we might uh, begin to feel like we're unknit. That's why when, when Christians struggle with sin, um, you know, one of the first things they do is they stop coming to church. You know, they're not, we're not thinking right. This is where we need to be. We need to be coming to those we are knit together with in Christ. We need the encouragement of the body, especially in those times. We shouldn't run from it, but that's, of course, what Satan wants us to do, is to not be where we should be. So we believe all the lies coming in, right? Um, but we cannot forget that we are knit together. And Paul says here that part of that prayer, that struggle of prayer, is that the knowledge of that and of the truth of the Word of Christ would remind them that they are knit together in that truth, that they are one. Um, look over with me at John 17. John 17, of course, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, and look how Jesus 
um, look how he words this subject of unity in, in this prayer. And we'll look at verses 20 through 23. Remember, Jesus is praying to the Father here, and he's, talk, he's been talking about his disciples. Um, now he's talking not only about his disciples, but those who will come to faith in him through the preaching of the apostles, which, taking it on down the line, that's you and me, okay? So start in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's Jesus talking about unity. He's talking about the oneness that not only we have as believers, but that as believers, what we have with Christ and that Christ has with the Father. Okay? Of course, it doesn't mean that we are Christ. Okay? We don't take it that far. But there is a unity there. There's a oneness there. Um, and, and that is a gift from God. So according to verse 23 that we just read there, what is it that makes us one and what does it prove to the world? What is it that makes us one, and what does it prove to the world? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, uh, it, what, that's what it proves to the world. It proves to the world that God sent the Son and loved us like He loves Him. That's interesting that, that when we are one, when we are this unity that the world sees, it proves something that you wouldn't think it necessarily would prove. I mean, because it could just prove to the world, well, those people love each other. They, they just, they're nice to each other. They love each other. But the Bible actually says it proves the message of the Bible. It proves to the world that God sent the Son. And that tells us that's the only way people can be united like that. It proves to the world the only way they can be united like that is because God sent the Son and loved us like He loves Him. We're made one by being in the Son who's in the Father. Well, what is it then that what is it that harms unity in the church today? What harms unity in the church? Dissension? Gossip? What else? Pridefulness? Saying we believe it, but don't live it. Okay, hypocrisy maybe. This all sound like sin. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, sin, right? Sin harms unity in the church. In whatever form that sin appears in, it harms unity. And sin is in all of its forms, it ultimately boils down to selfishness, a self-centeredness, our, uh, uh, looking after of our own desires, regardless of other people, regardless of what God says. Now, James says in James 4, 1 and 2, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, he really lays it out there. What, and he doesn't point the finger at some external source. It's our inward fleshly desires, right, that, that we're at war with. Uh, they, he says our passions are at war within us. That harms unity in the church. And I think you could even wrap that into this other one that I'm thinking of, a departure from biblical orthodoxy. That harms unity in the church. When you have any and all kinds of belief 
systems in a, in a congregation of people, that doesn't work. Because it's always going to keep, there's going to be always conflict with the scriptures. When we stick with the word of God and what it says, that brings about unity, right? Um, and that's addressed in the third result that Paul talks about in verses 2 and 3. And he talks about full assurance. It's found um, in a larger section from verses 2 through 5. There, it's, it kind of goes on more, but we're going to look at just what it says here in 2 and 3. He says, To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now Paul indicates there's something that the Christian is progressively gaining. More than that is something that we are reaching for. Um, it's extremely valuable. It's, it's reachable because God makes it accessible through knowledge, right? Through the work of the Spirit within us, God makes this accessible. Paul even says that the full assurance of understanding is equated to great wealth. He, he says it's like riches to know God, to know, to gain in knowledge of God is is to gain riches. He talks about understanding, applying biblical principles to everyday life, taking what God reveals and through knowledge reveals through knowledge and using that knowledge in our lives. Unbelievers like us before salvation are they are darkened in their understanding according to scripture. They don't understand the word of God. They can't God brings understanding to light in our hearts at the moment of salvation and then progressively through sanctification as we study His Word. Now we have, as Christians, access to the Word of God, actually understanding the Word of God, where as an unbeliever can open this book, they can read these words, but that's all it is, is words to them. It's some kind of a novel. It's kind of a package of short stories, um, whatever whatever they might think about it, but it's not the truth to them. It's not the Word of God, but when God saves a person, He opens up understanding to His Word because now you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and, and that's how we gain understanding. That's how we gain knowledge about God. Well, how can you explain the difference between understanding, between understanding and knowledge and wisdom? What's the difference? Okay, one's knowing in your head, one's knowing in your heart. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, what was that? Okay, one's heavenly, one's on earth, right? One, maybe the origins are man's thinking and the other, the origins are God's helping man to have understanding. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Okay. I had a high school teacher who actually read the Bible a lot. He had a lot of knowledge about some things that the Bible said, but he wasn't a believer. Um, and he loved to attack Christians with that because he actually typically would know more about what the Bible says than, than even believers. But, but he couldn't rightly apply it. He, he couldn't, he didn't know what it meant. Yeah, somebody else had a hand up. There you go. Right? Yeah. Yep. John. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's rooted in love. Okay. Yeah, I think as Christians we can say that. There's all kinds of knowledge you can get in the university system or whatever. And not even all of that is... False. I mean, you could learn a lot of things that are true about scientific things or they're factually true, but true wisdom is from God. Yeah, um, for sure. You know what? It's been said in multiple ways. You know, one is knowing things. You can have knowledge of things. The other is applying them or putting them into action or living by them. Um, and we can only do that through by being Christians by having the Spirit of God within us, uh, which is because of what Christ did, the ultimate act of love that makes knowledge of Him possible. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, ultimately, all worldly knowledge is man-centered. It's not God-centered. It's idolatry. Um, and so without, without a work of God in, in a person's heart, that's, what, that's all they'll have is, is idolatry, ultimately. Um, so, yeah, not good. I mean, it, I mean, it's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God are, I mean, it's been talked about in terms of how we know sports figures, you know, peop- a person can know all kinds of facts, statistics about a sports figure, and then somebody might ask him, do you know this guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, he did this, he did that, he did that. Yeah, but have you ever met him? I mean, if he saw you, would he recognize you? No. Yeah. Right, he knows about him. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus, about knowing what the Bible says about Jesus, and truly knowing him. And, and Jesus talks about that, too, when he, when he says to those that come before him, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, they had this whole list of all the things they did because they thought they knew him. Well, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name and this in your name? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You're a worker of lawlessness. All right, so it's scary. There's, there's a big difference. Um, thankfully, God is the one who does this work in a person. God is the one who saves someone, who causes someone to be born again. Um, and that's why we can trust it. That's why we can trust him as Christians. They don't have it. Yeah, and Paul, you know, Paul's, he's, Paul's indicating that the understanding and the knowledge that comes from the revelation of Christ in a person's life brings about assurance, right? In other words, a person who has been saved by God um, now has the truth fully revealed for salvation and in an ongoing way for assurance of eternal life, um, the only way we can have assurance is to know what God says and therefore to live at peace because he does what he promises. God does what he says. According to Luke, why can we have assurance in trusting God? Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We can have assurance because Christ is risen. And being in Him, we are seen by God clothed in His righteousness, not our own, not some self-righteous works of our own. So Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near, full assurance of faith, and Paul prays for the church that they will have this knowledge about Christ because it brings about an assurance that can be found nowhere else. Nothing they're hearing, none of the heresies they're hearing and the false teaching they have, none of that is bringing about any assurance. They, they've been shaken by these things. Paul is trying to ground them again in the truth, in the Word of God. And that's why his focus in this letter has been the person and work of Christ, and it will continue to be the focus of his letter. Christ is supreme over all things. And, and as we continue forward, the emphasis on Christ um, continues to be made, and Paul calls for the rejection of other things, for the rejection of worldly things, even the things that appear godly. They, they appear to have some value, some wisdom, but are of no use, and he, we are to reject that. 
but we'll have to wait until next time uh, to look further into that because we're out of time. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for tonight and thank you for Paul's struggle in prayer for the church at Colossae, for the church at Laodicea, and others that didn't know him. Lord, we can benefit from this message, Lord, because it is your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can benefit from the truth if in our lives we are shaken, Lord, if we are brought low by circumstances or problems or struggles with sin, Lord, that your truth, the truth of our eternal salvation in Christ that is secure in Him, kept by you, Father, that we can have assurance in that. I pray that we will crave the knowledge of you through your word so that in every area of life we can be assured of what the truth is. You are Almighty God. Lord, we depend upon you for everything. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict us in any area of our life where we are putting something else before you. We thank you, Lord, that you do teach us through your Spirit. We want to praise you. want you to receive all the glory for all of this. Thank you for forgiving our sins in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.